everyone, welcome to Flywheel Pod, your number one source for everything Frax, DeFi, and everything in between. If you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, you've come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave here with Capital K, and we're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel. And this time around, I think we hit different parts of the flywheel, not just on the application stablecoin part that we usually talk about, but especially on the validator portion of the flywheel, like the real like consensus layer of the flywheel. Uh, we had NPC Christian on who works at CoinFund. He's been in crypto for five years and I believe he's like just right out of college. He's, you know, part of the Zoomer generation and he's anything but an NPC. So, uh, Kit, what do you think of this episode? I felt like we went deep, man. I, we went I liked deep this on one chain. a lot. Like I actually yeah. learned a ton just sitting there and, and kind of soaking in what he was saying. Um, my favorite part, though, is at the end about the digital Phoenician. Like, add a little yeah. philosophy for us to think about, too. That was cool. Yeah. We got to add the links to all the articles we talked about here because uh, Christian is uh, a very he's a very active writer on Mirror. And he writes these phenomenal blog posts of, like, all, you know, all different types, all different ranges. Like, some covering governance, some com- covering validators, some covering culture. Like, you know, such range. And so I'm just like... and. Whenever I, it's funny, I've known Christian for almost a year, and like whenever I go to a conference, he's usually there. And so we always have these super deep conversations. I always learn so much from them. I'm like, I need to have this guy on a podcast. I need to bring him on so we can, like, you know, show the world the conversations we have. No, I'm glad you did, man. He was a great guest, and I couldn't even tell this was his first pod. He, he crushed it. I know, it. he just went off. Like, this is a real listening treat honestly. And I think our viewers are definitely going to enjoy how deep we go. And like, these are conversations that you're not going to find on Twitter, on social media. Like, you know, we actually go into what matters here. Um, and so on that note, we'll get this started. But before we start, make sure you hit that bell button and subscribe. We have finally hit a thousand subscribers. Let's fucking go. Come again. A th- come again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we did it. A thousand subscribers in four months. Honestly, by the, this is the 21st episode. So like, honestly, like, Thank you for all the viewers, all the support. Like, we've grown so fast, even in a bear market. So, like, damn, like, you guys are around. You guys are real ones. So, thank you. Uh, if you're new here, let's get to 10K. Hit that subscribe button. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at FlywheelPod. Don't forget to follow us on, you know, join our Telegram group, at FlywheelPod. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at DeFiDave22. You can follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And let's get the flywheel spinning. Welcome back, everyone, to Flywheel Pod. On this edition, we have an NPC on, NPC Christian, someone walking amongst us, but he's more than an NPC, in my opinion. Christian, how you doing? I'm good, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. as, a, as a viewer of Flywheel, it's a, it's a big honor. <laughs> Well, as a reader of all the quantum articles, it is an honor to have you on. Um, yeah, Billy, but, great. Yeah. So, but like what we were talking about before um, we were we went live was DevCon because we were both there. Um, we saw what went down there. We saw you know what people were talking about, what people were getting excited about, what could be bubbling up under the surface that could be narratives for next cycle. So. What was your overall thoughts about DevCon, and um, what did you see there? Yeah, DevCon was great. I mean, this is one of the best gatherings of people I think we've had in uh, 
in years, right? Like it's, yeah. it, it was just amazing. And we're kind of in that nice, like sweet spot where like everything that's happening is really exciting. Um, but we're not in a raging bull and that's not really our fault, right? Like the economy is kind of just not doing great across the board. So people are working on really cool stuff, but there was a little bit less of that, like grifter 2021 type of stuff going on. Um, yeah. so no, no bear market despair, no, no bull market grift right in the middle. Um, and is like any... the big thing, right? ZK, yeah. ZK tech, it's like the new cold war, right? You've got the ZK sync team and the polygon team, uh, duking it out through top dog status with the ZK UVM. Uh, but then there's a bunch of other teams trying yeah, to catch up there. Don't forget right? scroll. Scroll is yeah, the dark horse. Right. Yeah, scroll, yeah. Aztec, uh, Starkware, right, are all kind of doing stuff too. Um, a little bit less focused on on the EBM. I thought Aztec and the announcement of Nilar, which came a little bit before DevFone, is pretty interesting too, um, in the sense that it lets you do ZK programming without like knowing cryptography uh, to the same extent. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming on that side, but it really does feel like a, at its core, it's a cold war between. ZK Sync and Polygon, uh, they're keeping up with each other, I think in ways <laughs> mm-hmm. that maybe they didn't anticipate, like there's just no winner yet, right? Like Polygon's yeah. code base is open source. ZK Sync's beta is coming soon. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I don't think the app layer has like dreamed up enough really innovative stuff yet, uh, but we'll get there. And I think the easier it is to like write circuits with like Circom or, or uh, Noir or the Aztec language, the, the more interesting use cases we'll see. So you don't have a particular horse yet that like, oh, this is the definite winner of the ZK Wars. Like it's still, we're still in the middle of the race. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. the thing is like, it seems like the, I think I heard about Polygon in particular, like they're incentivized um, test net, like beta test net's going to last like six months to a year. Um, so that said, like this, I don't think 2023 is the year where we decide like this is the winner. In the sense, even with optimistic rollups, like we still don't really know who the winner is. It seems like it's Arbitrum, but that's not over yet, right? Like people are still using optimism uh, and mm-hmm. other rollup solutions. So yeah, I don't think it's, it'll be a while before we can really declare a winner. And maybe we never do, right? Like it could be a multipolar system. Did you guys see any uh, trends in the app layer across all, all the other types of, um, you know, non-ZK, just apps in general? Was there, was there a trend there? People building like decentralized social or anything like that? I mean, you have Lens, um, but I, Christian, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, social is a big one, but it's also like a hard nut to crack. I, I bet Correct. a lot of people who are more interested in building on Lens than trying to compete with it. Um, oh. But a big like app trend, I think, these days is that we have some pretty big communities now. Um, a lot of people are dealing with thousands of people in the Discord or something like that. And how do you like leverage the data that your community are producing to make sure you're making the right decisions um, and that you're getting like valuable insight out of them um, and things like that. So that seems like a big focus now. Like people are getting to a point where you need to take the analytics uh, and intelligence side of like managing a project more seriously. And a lot of different products seem to be coming out now that are helping people get that data insight like out of their discord and stuff. Cause you can't just take like off the shelf solutions and apply them yeah. to the space. We're using a totally mm-hmm. different sort of set of technologies and you need to do analytics on wallets too. So, um, that's like unlocking another set of value, right? Because right, right now kind of just like become a number in the discord and that's it. So now this is enabling like more engagement and more insights be like sort of peeled off that. 
And also taking load off of community managers who are, it's a tough job. (laughs) That is a very tough job. (laughs) Um, Were there any projects in particular that is doing that type of analytics and engagement? Yeah, there were, there were a bunch. Um, so I, I'd met with a couple that are just kind of different types of CRM, um, like Bloxy was one of them that I, I thought was pretty cool for NFTs. And there, there were, there were a bunch though, um, that are all kind of like, okay, we have all this data and then what do we do with it? Right. The other part of that, which is like the other side of things is that, um, you guys are probably aware that, uh, with GDPR and then the associated regulation in California, um, they're like basically the data practices that like big tech does are going to be illegal within like the yeah. next two years. Um, and that, so like, that's pretty huge too, because we always thought about as a space going back to like, even before Ethereum thinking about how like you can be sovereign over your data, but like no one cared. Right. But now it's being criminalized to, to basically not be sovereign your data right like google chrome is removing cookies third-party cookies until uh, october 2024 so there's now like a date set on the calendar when like third-party data collection is just no longer going to be viable for companies and that's where they get a lot of their revenue and so now they have to think seriously about like how do we get something that is going to give us the same type of like business intelligence and marketing um, ability with without like violating people's privacy rights and I guess they're calling it zero party data. That's like the, the new buzzword for, for, for what this is. It basically means like, it's my data. I'm, I'm choosing to hand it over to you. It's getting pooled, maybe anonymized, maybe not. And then sent to people I've consented it to be sent to. Um, and that always has been, I think people always like tried to build things like this, but they've always been toys, right? Like no one cares. If I'm a company, mm-hmm. I can get way more money out of just taking data than paying for it. But soon they won't be able to do that. And that zero party data is never going to be as good as third party data because you can't spy on everybody, right? Only the people who have consented to actually give over that data will be the ones that you get insight from, but it'll be their best option. And so data unions are also becoming really important um, and facilitating like that knowledge transfer. A few founders had said to me, uh, they're like, look, you know, before it's really hard to convince what two companies to engage with like a product like this that's built on crypto in any way. Um, but now they're like, okay, well, we need this. I don't care how it's done. Don't even tell me how it's done. I just care about the output, which is the, the data that I need, right? They don't really care anymore about what the underlying sort of tech ecosystem is that enables them to get this data. It just so happens that blockchain they just is want the, data. the best solution. They want the data, and this is the best solution. Um, so in a rare instance of government regulation helping us, uh, I think that's going to drive a lot of adoption. Yeah. Speaking of regulation, I think one of the biggest themes, at least for me, um, was this one speech. I forget, but I think it's, the person was also named Christian, but it was about regulation in crypto. And it talked about the current like DCPPA in the States and also the stable coin regulation in the EU. And these are definitely real threats to DeFi as we know it. If the one in the States get passed, then we'll have some watered down version of DeFi that really isn't that much different than TradFi. And then if the one in the EU gets passed, like they literally limit stablecoin volume and effectively puts a ban on algo stables. So have, have you thought about that at all? Like, what are your thoughts on that? And especially with the recent SBF uh, revelations. Yeah, that's been crazy. And I mean, <laughs> I never would have expected like BitBoy is now like kind of our guy um, championing yeah. sort of the like, Bitboy? Who would have thought? 
new timeline. That, that really came out of left field. So like this space never ceases to amaze me. But yeah, um, yeah it's a bit scary, right? Like there's also the other stablecoin bill. Um, I think you, you you mentioned it as well that mm-hmm. made some kind of statement like endogenously backed stablecoins. Oh yeah, the American allowed. one. Yeah, like that. That's a biological term. Like you doesn't even really you're taking a term from biology and applying it to this mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense to me. And like what really is endogenously backed? They're trying to say you can't do Terra again, but mm-hmm. like in reality, I think you could take that definition endogenous. Like I don't know. I I, I never really liked. I don't like these words that they're using. Um, and with the latest stuff, when it comes to like the SBF suggestions, it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit scary, right? But it, who knows how far any of this goes? It takes time. So I think we still have time to scramble. Oh, no, and hopefully the, the key projects in the space manage to decentralize themselves to the extent that you just can't touch it, right? Like that's the best we can hold for at this point. Yeah. Um, I just can't help but think like Alameda and like, not just Alameda, but a lot of different trading desks and institutions, like literally made their killing, made a killing off the blood of minnows on chain. I mean, it's part of the game. It's part of the business, but yep. they go around and they, they like basically kick down the ladder that got them up. It's like, okay, now we're here. Then no one else can get here. Um, I don't know. It's kind of fucked up. It, it, it really, it, I agree. Yeah. But like if you think about it, right? Like Alamitos of the world made a lot of money kind of like farming retail liquidity right and then yeah literally there is no more retail liquidity though so they can't keep money keep making money doing that because retail went away so now like your best bet is to do this and kick out all like the dgens make it into a walled garden and then package it up nicely and present it to the institutions so you can keep farming i understand why they're doing it but yeah i agree like it's just really unfortunate um yeah, like SBF is an EV kind of person, and I understand that, and he has every right to be an EV kind of person. But we have every right to call him out on it, <laughs> and that's yeah, what exactly we're doing. right. And we have every right yeah. to be decentralized enough to not uh, be applicable to those kinds of uh, regulations. I yeah, uh, I don't know. It's just disappointing. <laughs> I'll put it that way. It's like well, the thing is, like every crypto billionaire goes through some kind of like hero villain arc. Um, <laughs> he'll be he'll have a redemption. He'll probably like you know step back from FTX and start a blog. Uh, like Arthur. Step back from FTX right. and run for president. <laughs> why you do you think he's God like, Emperor? God Emperor, God yeah. Emperor, SBF. Like, why do you think he's putting his face everywhere, like on his advertisements and stuff? Like, oh, I, control, yeah. right? He's gonna. I be... mean, he could like put like athletes face, other celebrities, other noble figures, but he puts his face. I think he's trying to build his own brand equity to run for president or like run for Congress or something. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think also we fell into the trap of believing that he was like kind of like king of the nerds. And mm-hmm. I, to me, it feels more now like that was like a much bigger LARP than like anyone could have guessed. Uh, you know, what he's doing, you know what I mean? Like he's not king of the nerds. He's he's much more of a like better tactician and politician than people give him credit for, it seems like. Uh, yeah, and he's been like him and the rest of FTX have been in D.C. They have been putting the work there, lobbying. And we can tell based on, like, the way these bills have come out. And I feel like crypto needs to do much better of an effort, like, being in D.C. or, like, supporting people that are in D.C. I remember in June I went to D.C. for a conference of, like, crypto builders and, like, people in, uh, like, that work on Capitol Hill, whether they're aides or whether they work in, like, regulation and stuff like that. And, like, D.C. is a different game than the world on-chain. You have to be there. You have to, like, you know, make – like, 
people in DC have other priorities. They have a country to run, basically. And crypto is just like somewhere in the middle. It's like up to us to like make it even higher of a priority. And I feel like as like the thing we need to do is more and more Americans like rely on crypto for their living or their jobs rely on crypto. That's the main thing. Like as long as like more people like jobs rely on crypto, then the less like touchable it is to make harmful regulation about it. Yeah, but by the same coin, like the more people are speculating, the more people are going to come after it. Um, I'm, I'm not talking about speculation. Uh, I'm talking about like little job, like all of us, like job jobs in crypto. Like, oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah, of course. Like real, like real jobs, not like oh, like let me like gamble yeah. in Yolo yeah. on like. Oh no, jobs. I agree, and and we're all sort of you know paying bills with crypto. Yeah, yeah. income sense, tax paying I, jobs. <laughs> to be yeah. specific, but what I'm saying is that for for every income tax generating job where there's a 1099 and all that. Um, a handful of speculators kind of go along with that, right? Like if you work at a project, 100%. then uh, you have, in all likelihood, several people gambling uh, on that project. And that's, you know, part, part, at least part of your liquidity. You can't really avoid that fact yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someday, hopefully, but like right now, I mean, it is what it is, right? Yeah. So what are your thoughts on regulation? Are you hopeful that, you know, when we get to the end of the tunnel, that it will be full of flowers and like... We'll like we'll make it through, or do you think we'll have a watered down version of DeFi and we'll have to go somewhere else? I, I certainly hope not. I, I really <laughs> liked Davis's comments this morning. Um, you know uh, the the raccoon, uh, because he was like, "Why are we even talking about whether or not like why regulate crypto, right?" Because people are like falling to this argument. Like, oh, you can't not regulate something. Why not, right? Like, why not? We've been fine for thirteen years. Let's just like continue that. Of course, that's like a very utopian thing to hope for. So it's not really realistic. But uh, I think that yeah. ultimately, like, we're just going to keep being accelerationist in terms of like paradigm and innovation. And we'll probably be ahead of like any useful regulation for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I agree. Right? Like, I th- this won't really come through for years mm-hmm. in the market. And then by that time, we'll be like sort of doing some unknowable, crazy, like new financial primitive type stuff that's just like beyond what we could even conceive of right now. I know. It's crazy because like four years ago, I couldn't conceive of like what has happened since and like all the stuff that's happened on chain since. Um, and I, I really hope that like they leave the world on chain alone. They recognize it as sovereign and separate from the state. And then like, you know, where there's like on ramps like Coinbase and FTX and whatnot, like go ahead, regulate that. But when like, don't mess with the world on chain because that's part of sovereign. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that the government believes that. I, I know somebody mm-hmm. made a statement. I think it was somebody in Congress recently that said like, well, because most nodes are running in the United States, everything oh, that was Gary in our jurisdiction. Oh, was it Gary Gensler? Oh, I yeah. thought it was a congressman. Um, but either way, like that's horrifying, right? Yeah, that's but terrifying. I also, yeah. <laughs> but I also think it's like very, very, very difficult for them to have any like, comprehensive regulation on the base layer like to me it just seems like this whole talk about like sanctioning the ETH client is like kind of silly right like it why would you do that when you can just go after like circle it's so much easier right yeah it's something that you understand mm-hmm. they have a bank account right you can just tell right, them right. okay like blacklist certain types of people you can go after stable coins really easily it's much harder to create a framework to like regulate the action of validators it's really weird to me that we're all like self-censoring right now with like OFAC compliant blocks. Like no one told you to do that, right? Like we yeah, all just like it. had this like collective fit and then decided that it would be best to like flog ourselves for no reason. 
Dude, fucking Eric Wall spoke at DevCon. He had a phenomenal speech about this very subject. And not even Swift, not even Swift is OFAC compliant. Because if they were OFAC compliant, they would have to be OFAC compliant for every country. So, like, not e- so p- these protocols and different entities are going farther than Swift, which is like underlying the exactly, entire banking right? system. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. And massive banks get like hit with money laundering fines all the time, right? Like just just hit, take the slap on the wrist, they take it and they move on. Um, yeah. I don't know why we could like. I, I would see a world. I think it's perfectly reasonable to have a world where like validators do whatever they want, right? And then, and it all like because you're not really like choosing based on any like major heuristic that has to do with like who is transacting. You're just building blocks or maybe after proposal builder separation, you're not even building the block. You're just proposing it, right? You don't care what's in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so like if there happens to be a transaction that like, I don't know, funded Al Qaeda in the block that you proposed, right? Like maybe you get fined for Bring it. Bring it back to like, 2006. <laughs> yeah. Like, gonna, yeah. People yeah. are going to go to jail. I don't know why we're freaking out about this. The yeah. banks do it all the time, right? I think J.P. Morgan got fined recently for like Dude, HSBC like and the Mexican cartels. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. They knew well, about J- it. Just well, like, you, I don't know if you saw J.P. Morgan. Um, there was a, a ship that got seized with like oh, hundreds co- of tons the- of cocaine on it that was owned by J.P. Morgan. So it's, uh, it's not too uncommon that these people just do this, right? And then they get fined and they move on. It's the cost of doing business, which is fucked up. <laughs> and we're not even talking about trying to do like massive no one's smuggling drugs using ethereum right like mm-hmm. using an account based blockchain to do like illegal activities one of the dumbest things you could possibly do <laughs> if you really think that tornadoing right. your money is going to keep you anonymous then like you're completely full of it um it it's definitely not like if they want to find you if chainalysis wants to find you even a little they will i think yep. they can um pretty easily yeah. so like we're not doing anything bad anyway right it's just uncensorable it's not, mm-hmm. it's not like anonymous to the extent that if I want to build like a nuclear farm in my apartment and I need to like order uranium, yellow cake uranium from somewhere, I can like clandestinely do it and have it show up in my house using Ethereum. Highly unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, are you a DAO looking for deep liquidity on your token? Are you looking to trade in size with the most minimal amount of slippage possible? Well, we have a DEX for you. It's FrackSwap. The first TWAM in existence as a time-weighted average market maker. It's basically a DCA machine. So when you make your trades, when you're a treasury manager and you rebalance your treasury and portfolio, you don't get wrecked by slippage. It's all handled for you by the TWAM. You want to trade over a day, a week, a month? FraxSwap has you covered. And don't forget, if you pair with the Frax token, you can go through governance and get a gauge and incentivize liquidity that way. So Frax, if you're looking for liquidity, you're looking to trade in size, FraxSwap is there for you. Yeah, this, all this stuff of sovereignty, what it comes down to, I want to like get to one of the main questions and kind of like the overarching theme of this podcast I want to get into. Um, so, Christian, what is your grand crypto thesis um, and like for blockchain to underlie the global economy? Because like I think we can all agree that eventually it will. Like, but... Like, do you think we're going to be close to Satoshi's vision or do you think we're going to have some watered down version of it? Like, what is your grand crypto thesis? Yeah, I guess like Satoshi's vision, if we were to define it, would probably do like one CPU, one vote, right? Like that's kind of the distillation of what he thinks, well, what he thought, peace be upon him. Um, peace be upon I don't, him. <laughs> the holy I don't, one. I don't, yes, of course. Um, 
I don't know that that will happen. Um, but that's like such on such a big time scale, right? Like there's a lot of things that I think need to happen for that kind of thing to come to fruition. Um, like IOT is probably one of them. Like you need to have the cost of running nodes really low and you need to have like really powerful computers that are also sovereign to some extent, like running in a bunch of stuff. And that's already kind of starting to happen, but most of them are like, you know, Zuckerberg bots that are like, can be controlled remotely and stuff like that. Um, but like, eventually if we see that kind of thing proliferate, which has nothing to do with crypto, that's like a computer hardware thing. Then you could have nodes everywhere and like everyone participating in consensus in like a very utopian way. But I think it's pretty unlikely. Um, blockchain will probably come to underlie most of the economy just because of the economies of scale and like cost efficiency things that you can get from it. Um, and so that's both from like, there's a study that uh, was done like maybe two years ago uh, where they kind of like followed the paper trail of like sending X dollars through the banking system from like one country to another and then compared it to like sending it with Bitcoin, for example. And the study found that I, I wish I could tell you the name of the study, but I, I could probably Google it later. Um, Bitcoin is like one sixtieth cheaper. Um, to send one sixtieth. Yeah. Something like that. It was like in the range of one out of 60. Um, when you total like, okay, there's banks with branches with employees and like people who wear suits and they're going to sit in an office and there's like Swift and all this infrastructure and, and lawyers all this stuff. and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. Like everything. And so that kind of thing. Even for just payments, that's one efficiency. And then there's also like compute with consensus and, you know, state machines like Ethereum, and then also like generalized compute and file storage and everything else, right? Like all these things will be made cheaper as more people adopt it. Mm. And that's just ultimately going to mean that eventually using blockchain technology is just going to be like a sensible choice, <laughs> just like how when you get paid, if you get paid in US dollars, you probably don't get like a check in the mail, right? Like, you get ACH into your account. Just makes more sense. Yeah. Like the economies of scale will just make it that much cheaper. And because it's cheaper, you know, everything's just going to become on chain. Um, and so like, I feel like there's like three different parts of this vision. I like from what I've like from our past conversations and from, you know, reading quantum, your blog. Um, I feel like the three parts are, um, validators and like the nodes and whatnot, stable coins, um, and also like governance and the Daria. I mean, there's obviously more parts, but like those are like the three parts I want to tackle here. So I know you're a big validator guy. You have like run your own validators. You're, you know, you're big, uh, pocket maxi. Um, so oh, what's yeah, your, I love pocket. <laughs> yeah. So what's your, <laughs> what's your validator thesis? And like, what do you think of the current, um, LSD environment? Yeah. So like on validators, Ethereum, it's been really interesting. Uh, there's been like a thousand new validators a day entering eat uh, which is oh. awesome um, oh, wow. and uh sovereignty that, yeah i mean it's a good thing and a bad thing so my best guess is that a lot of that activity because if you look at it they actually tend to deploy in like batches of a few hundred at the same time so my guess is that exchanges are scaling up a lot it's probably like binance kraken coinbase which isn't mm -hmm. the best thing ever but like are we surprised right <laughs> like no that's that's who's scaling up so a lot of networks are looking pretty robust. Even like Gnosis Chain has like 100,000 validators. Didn't know that, but they do. Um, so that that's also pretty impressive. That was, uh, they, they announced or they stated that at uh, DevCon. I didn't realize. So a lot of people supporting Dark Forest. Apparently it's got uh, <laughs> product market fit. So, And that's all you need. Exactly, right? Well, there's other stuff on Gnosis Chain. And they're, they're going to be doing some cool stuff pretty soon, I think. But, uh, 
in terms of like liquid staking, um, obviously like Lido is kind of the main guy right now, but uh, I think there are more coming online and most people, and I would even, I don't know if it's like the direction of Lido, but it seems like most people have this expectation that Lido is not going to be like king forever. There will probably be like three to five major uh, liquid mm -hmm. staking derivatives that, that are in the market and the sort of economy of swapping between them will probably be like a huge edge of growth, like curve finance and others that want to like support that. Maybe the like frax swap or, or something of that. Did nature, you see right? frax just dropped frax ETH? Yeah, I saw that. I saw that's, mm -hmm. that's out now. And so that's going to be a big one, I think. Uh, it seems like Frax is pretty well positioned to, to be one of those big players. Um, oh, yeah. If, like, if I were to guess, I would probably guess that, like, of, like, the top three or, like, three important ones, probably Curve ETH and then FRX ETH. And then as, a, as like, a third one, I, I mean, I just don't want to go out and let say Rocket Pool ETH, but probably, like, Lido ETH is, like, the other... Like, Wait, what, what do you mean by curve ETH? Like, you think curve's going to have, like, its I own... Think, well, aren't they planning, alongside the stablecoin, aren't they also planning... Uh, an ETH validator? An ETH, ETH derivatives as well? Uh, oh, I was under the impression they were, but maybe not. Wait, I mean, hmm. I haven't heard Could... that or read that anywhere, but it would make sense. Like, it would make... Honestly, like, the same way, like, everybody hopped on the VE bandwagon, I'm sure everyone's yep. going to hop on the validator bandwagon, but they won't do it as well as the OG players and Frax. Yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, but I, I hope for a multi-polar world and yeah. like, that's going to be great. Like you can imagine like, if, especially like the permissionless validator protocols, like the rocket pool and stuff like that. If you can go and you can like set up your own validator, stake your own ETH, get your own, you know, liquid staking derivatives back and then LP those into the pools that, you know, swap between, that'd be a pretty nice, like additional source of yield. Have you looked into frac? Oh, go ahead, Kent. I, I, I just want to double click here to see in this multipolar world, how many liquid staking uh, alternatives would be like too much? Like if everybody had a, laking, uh, a staking liquid derivative, how does that impact DeFi? I feel that would just like fragment ETH liquidity everywhere. Yeah, probably. But like what you end up getting in that case, most likely is just like meta derivatives, right? So like if you have like a four pool on curve that has like four mm -hmm. big ones and then you just like, you, know, you can like collateralize a token based off of that, just something like that. So I think the market could support a lot of them. Um, but ultimately like more than five probably won't have like big liquidity. Um, they'll probably like smaller ones will probably end up having some kind of like incentive structure on top of it to give you like better yield in one way or another whether it's like inflation and tokens and like that kind of a subsidy or like something more exotic, but they probably will have to do something like that to keep like a small, dedicated, like more risk tolerant group of people staking there rather than going to like the safety of like a decent one, right? Because there's like pretty big risk when you get like any liquid staking derivative mm -hmm. um, of like DPEGs, of issues with their like pseudo network that they usually operate, right? Like they're kind of, uh, you're kind of like putting a lot of faith in this like network of validators that you may or may not be a part of. Um, and making sure that they can coordinate it and that the funds are being custodied properly and stuff like that. So um, the most risk tolerant people will probably end up in these like sort of take your ETH yield from 8% or 6% to like 15 by you know, a bunch of token subsidy and like other stuff like that. Have you seen mm -hmm. Frax ETH? Have you seen how it's architect? I haven't looked super deeply into it, um, but it's, as always it's with the Frax elegant. products, it's super exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is a two-token system. You have Frax ETH, which is the equivalent of WETH, 
but I like to call it the Chad Weth because Weth doesn't do anything, but like Fraxeth, like when you like exchange your ETH for Fraxeth, like that automatically goes into a validator. And then you can stake your Fraxeth for S Fraxeth in a 4626 vault. And that's where you earn yield. And there's always going to be like above baseline yield because not all Fraxeth is going to be in that vault. And on top of that, you're going to have the curve pool and who has the most convex, who's friends with the most people with convex and curve. It's Frax. It's so yeah. like, well, and then there's also pitch too, that that should be helpful. Right. In that and they have, exactly. And then they have pitch as well. And then on top of that, um, they have Frax lend. So I'm sure in the future, there's going to be ways like you can use like, at, whether it's like curve LP tokens as collateral, um, yep. I know Drake has leaked that before on a space I was with him, whether it's like S-Fraxeth or Fraxeth or whatnot. Um, there's many ways to like leverage that for Frax in the future. Um, it's super exciting. And you're, we talked about like Rocket Pool before, like how they have the bonding. Um, Sand has talked about with Fraxland, you'll be able to like, if you want to become a validator on Fraxeth, like you can just like bond your Fraxeth and like become one in the same way with Rocket Pool. So it's like a super elegant system. They really thought it through, and like, what is an LSD but a stablecoin for ETH? So, you know, exactly, yeah, that's yeah. exciting, man. I that seems like a pretty attractive place to park some ETH. Um, so I have to look into that more deeply as well. Yeah. Um, so I know you're a big Pocket Network guy. Um, can you give like a little bit of like what Pocket Network is for the people who you know who don't know about it? Yeah, absolutely. So Pocket is basically a network that provides for RPC relays um, for a number of blockchains. So like when you connect to a wallet, when you're using a wallet, like your transactions have to go somewhere, right? Like a transaction is just like really a, a JSON object with some data and then a signature that proves that, you know, the wallet, the key that you own can like has the ability to, you know, authorize that transaction. And they have to be broadcast from your wallet to node so that then it can be gossiped to the network and that like transition over http from a wallet to a node on the network is the facilitated by the rpc api um and so every network has something like this uh you, this is how you transact and so most of the time we use services like infura or alchemy to to do that and most of us don't even really think about it uh because when you set up your wallet you just have like a default link but those links are unsafe um, they can be, they have been hacked. So like the Polygon mainnet, uh, for example, the Polygon mainnet RBC got hacked, uh, not too long ago through a DNS attack where basically like somebody, uh, switched out the, the A record on the Polygon mainnet dot RBC, blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's uh, dot com. Yeah. And so it was really funny because it was like a very, very sophisticated social engineering attack, right? They were calling, I think it was Namecheap or GoDaddy, one of those two registrars that did it. Somebody mm -hmm. was like calling them and convince them like, hey, I'm the admin of this, like I need you to switch it to this. And then now they, they can point this link at anything they want, right? They point it to one of those Google form scams, like MetaMask support, like, oh, error, put in your private key into this Google form. So pretty like low tech, low effort scam for like a pretty like advanced uh, attack. But anyway. uh, honestly, like all those DNS attacks are fucking terrifying. I remember like, and even like the biggest protocols like Polygon are not immune. It happened at Curve. It happened at CoinGecko. I remember when I went on CoinGecko. Yeah, I'm oh like, yeah. What the hell is this? Like, why are they asking me to like sign this transaction? And <laughs> it's it's like it's this so is why bad. we're still in beta. It's like terrifying. Like 
you don't like every time you like yeah. sign something like you don't know if like the RPCs are fucking hacked or whatnot. Like no wonder why we haven't yep. hit mainstream yet. Well, actually, so that interesting as like a tangent here on DNS attacks. That's not our fault. First of all, that's like yeah. just bad architecture of DNS providers. And I can the body that like sort of handles mm-hmm. like top level DNS stuff and governs that. It's like very much aware that it sucks that we have these companies that we can like fool somebody at the company and then change someone's website. Like that must cost, it costs the economy like tens of millions, if not more every year in damages, right? Like for your reputation, stolen money, loss of business, downtime, et cetera. Um, and so it is like, there's a pretty long report from like a year ago um, or, or less where they're basically trying to identify ways that they could decentralize that. And they actually mentioned by name a few crypto projects in there, they talk about ENS, they talk about Handshake, talk about unstoppable domains. Wow. And they kind of like consider them like, look, because th- their view is that like one way or another, we can't really have like these GoDaddies be so powerful uh, in, yeah. in the world of like top level DNS because it's just costing people money, right? Like it's just not no a daddy. No daddy. <laughs> no daddy. No daddy. Uh, yeah. yeah. Name cheap, yeah. no thank you, right? Like yeah. nobody wants that. So they're Putting trying the to figure cheap out and name cheap. Yeah. yeah, cheap customer service. So, like, yeah. I can just call up with a, you know, caller ID from some random country and be like, okay, hey, can you fake Google.com and can you actually, like, point that to this uh, this other IP address? And then they're like, yeah, okay, cool. You look like uh, the CEO of Google. And then they do it, right? Like, it's just <laughs> you can that kind CEO. of a system shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, but anyway, back to the pocket. Um, so, basically, it's a network of nodes that facilitate those calls being sent out to different blockchains. And... The network itself is taking in incoming requests through portals. There's one right now, and actually there'll be multiple, and then routing that to the network that it's supposed to go to. Um, and I think it's a really exciting, interesting project. It's one of those things where like RPC is like the bedrock of what anything is doing, right? So there's always a market for it. Mm-hmm. They do like a billion and a half relays a day, uh, like individual day. calls. Yeah. Wow. So it, it's pretty. It's pretty impressive. I do think though. As a caveat. So first of all, I probably should have said this at the beginning, but not financial advice, do your own research. Um, opinions are my own and not that of my employer. Um, but I would say like with, with resource networks in general, and I think they fall into that category, um, in this kind of like pre-mass adoption stage of them, tokenomics really tough. Uh, and that's kind of across the board. Yeah. So like if you look at yeah. anything, look at like Akash, Definity, LivePeer, uh, Storage, Filefoin, we? Right, like all these networks that are doing different things like that, that are providing you a service. Even like, um, what's it called? The audio one. Everyone knows for this. Audius. Uh, audio. Audius. There we go. Yeah. Sorry, I literally have a node for it, but <laughs> I wanted to say Audacity, but that's like a but the Audacity. That's like the podcast yeah. service. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, all of those resource networks, right? Like, it's really tough to um, to have like a decent sort of economic model at this current stage. I think probably the first one to really crack it will be Chainlink. And that's just because Chainlink mm-hmm. is so big, right? Like they have a vision for their economics. It probably is gonna wind up in a lot of link getting staked. And by the end of like 2023, I think it's gonna be a pretty interesting landscape uh, with respect to that. A linky renaissance, one might say. Yeah. The return the of the link marines. Yeah, yeah oh, the they, link never marine. <laughs> they never went anywhere. They never went anywhere. They're still us. The Link Marines were like the first meme force in crypto. Like yeah. from the boards of 4chan to Twitter, 
and they were just relentless. They actually, I think they're the ones that like took Pepe like away from like being political and like brought it back oh, yeah. to being like normie friend, not normie friendly, but like friendlier. I mean, also I think like Hong Kong protests had something to do with it. Do with it as well. In 2019, it's like, wait a second. Like these people are fighting for democracy, and I'll never forget the one Pepe with like, not my eye. like. They hit my eye with the Pepe. It was like that was such a bad. That was such a badass yeah. picture. I'm like, there you fucking go. And yeah, then, like, I think. Yeah, I think Linky uh, links. Link people took a poo like the small Pepe, yeah. and like made that into their thing, and then that kind of just like backward propagated across all of crypto and like all the other Pepes and like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there were, I don't think they were the first crazy meme community because wasn't Hex a little bit before them? And they were also like kind of a psycho. Like, well, mm-hmm. Hex is the, Hex, oh. the Hexkins. And then also yeah. uh, the Digibyte people. Remember Neto slash Digibyte? There were some rabid Digibyte people. I vaguely remember. Um, oh. I mean, 2017 was, I don't think um, Hex existed. And I consider Hex like separate from like the rest of crypto culture. Like oh, I'm yeah, pretty totally sure, like is. Richard Hart, like literally did mails, like like by mail, like sending them to people, like, hey, check out Hex. Like he did it in, like a very like <laughs> old school fashion, and like he was able to. I mean, I think Richard Hart has like a IQ of like 150, 100. He's like technically a genius or something, but like he was able to like rally up like a bunch of people around this coin, and like I mean, everybody thought it was a Ponzi and kind of is i mean like well i, I mean don't... he had a point though for a while it was like a really well portfolio ponzi uh, yeah i mean no some, he does have, that's the thing back. he's really smart mm-hmm. so he does have points <laughs> yeah don't get me like, wrong. but i mean that yeah so that that community though it's like a little bit less united i think because they're all just like simping for one guy like mm-hmm. yeah Chainlink has their whole thing about like sergey but it's also kind of they're more for the tech. Ugh, I hate saying that, but like that's and what they're the interested tech. in. Yeah, more so than just like their demigod. Yeah, they're um, like literally the demigod. Like in his Twitter bio, he's like very intentional. He's like, I own the world's most expensive diamond. I well, you see his pictures on Twitter too. It would be like him like on the phone, we're holding like a Louis bag, Drip. stepping yeah. out of the Lamborghini, like, and then like twerking like, bro, all over like, the place. Yeah, it's <laughs> like uh, incredibly cringe, but like for a certain audience, they're like, I. That's her God. Like, I want to be like that. He's going to take me to the promised land. It's the same people who wind up, like, following all over those, like, other internet gurus, whoever they may be. It's like, it's like the Andrew Tate type of crowd, um, in a way, but for, like, you know, financial technology. So, <laughs> uh, but the, the Nano community was also, like, insane. Oh, Nano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were Nano, and then they've rebranded to Digibyte at some point. And, like, the only value prop oh, okay. of the whole ecosystem was just fast payments, right? Yes. And then yeah, I think I they got fifty one percent attack at one point. So it wasn't even like a viable but they they were like super insane. I'm one of my first uh crypto Twitter friends on one of my old accounts that I don't use anymore really was I wonder if he's still around, but he, he was the this like shill who was like a boer in South Africa who ran like the Digibyte Africa community. He was a cool guy, but also just like so brainwashed by Nano. It's like what do you think yeah. is gonna happen with this? Honestly, like, uh, where is it going to go? But it, future it had a nice of France, obviously. <laughs> and then there, but there's a community for everything. So like PureCoin, right? Which launched in what, mm-hmm. like two, 2013 or 2014. They kind of like invented proof of stake, right? Nothing really ever happened with PureCoin. I don't even think they were really aiming to be like a computation environment. It was just like, here's proof of stake. Here's how it works. And I had made a comment, like kind of offhand, trying to like 
use that as an example of like a dead project because it is dead, right? Like no one is using PeerPoint. Who uses PeerPoint, right? It's from like almost 10 years ago now. It's, it was an experiment, right? And I had people come out of the woodwork and come after me. We're talking shit about PeerCoin, which 99% of crypto was not around and PeerCoin was like a thing, including I think the three of us most likely, like in mm-hmm. 2013, 14, maybe not, maybe I'm being too presumptuous, but like the, uh, that time there, like maybe 1% to 5% of the people who are here now were there back then. And I still had Twitter shills come after me. Some guy was like, oh yeah, PeerCoin has no use, no users. Well, how come I bought a house with PeerCoin? I had no idea. Like I, I haven't done bought a house with PeerCoin, but like, awesome. Yeah. Wait, so um, what's your crypto origin story? Like how'd you get into this shit? Oh yeah, so I, I started degen trading in high school. Um, and that was like, I had bought a, I had gotten a laptop and bring my laptop to class and like just hang out on Poloniex. <laughs> you mean the Poloniex troll box? Dude, the troll box is the best. I love the troll box. I missed that. Like that was the best thing about exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, that it needs to come back ASAP. Like it just made trading, it made staring at a chart so much more entertaining because you could just be like trolling in the, in the troll box and then, but anyway, yeah. So did that like sort of as a hobby and it's like fun. Um, for a while. And then when I went to college and this was like in late 17, um, I got like email from the school because like my school, like get blasted with like emails of clubs trying to advertise and that kind right. of thing. And one of them was like, Hey, join the crypto club. We're brand new and just started. And I, I read the subject line and I was like, well, it could either be cryptocurrency or it could be like cryptography or like puzzle games or the Enigma <laughs> code or something like that. And I was like, well, I don't really care about cryptography. I don't really care about puzzles. But then something inside me was like, okay, just open the email, dude. Like you just got here. You're supposed to see these things. Like don't be so dismissive already. Just open your so mind. I, exactly. Right. So I opened it. I was like, oh, it is cryptocurrency. That's cool. I'll like join this club. Um, so I did and I went and within a few weeks, um, the president of the club, he unfortunately is no longer in crypto, but is a very, very smart person. Um, he had a friend at Block Tower who uh, graduated years before us and that guy wanted an intern so he came to the club one day and was like all right who wants to do who wants an internship it's like 10 hours a week and it's paid and no one raised their head except me and one other person which is like you don't like money like dude <laughs> you don't like 10 money? hours a week yeah. yeah sign me up it was like 15 bucks an hour 10 hours a week and this was like 2017 before 15 dollars an hour was like standard minimal wage everywhere mm-hmm. so that was like yeah 15 dollars an hour ball and nice like <laughs> you know, minimum wage is like 750 or something so yeah it was pretty cool um so i said yeah and me and another guy were kind of like the candidates for it um and we did like these little research challenges but the other guy had also just gone to china for like a few weeks to teach english and had no time so it was kind of one of those like all right well you're the one doing the stuff so i guess it's you so um and he didn't know that i was like a freshman i was like 18 years old at the time so i called him he's like yeah, okay great and he goes are you sure you want to do this you're a freshman you should probably just go like enjoy yourself or something i was like no i want to do it like please i was standing outside because my building didn't have a phone reception and i was like getting bit by mosquitoes like running around but be like no no please like give me this chance yeah uh, and then that translated into like yeah yeah, no, literally that, that translated into like two and a half years of being the, the intern there, um, which is sort of what like sealed the deal, I think. And then I did a bunch of other stuff 
um, with different people one after the other and then wound up at, at Coy Fund afterwards. Uh, where'd you go to school? Uh, Dartmouth. Yeah, Dartmouth. Sure. Damn. Cool. Okay. A lot of mosquitoes up there in New England. Yeah, it's really bad. Like the, yeah. in the fall, because this was all taking place, that initial call was like October and November. So it's still like warming up, not enough frost yet that like you know, bugs are active. So I was oh, the bug bites, but being like, okay, I sealed the deal. That's all that matters. I'll go get some aloe for these bug bites later. I went yeah, to UMass so and like, you, you, I remember how, okay. oh, go ahead. I just wanted to, to, to double click on the story a little bit. So you went, um, during your university days, you were basically at Block Tower. And then when you kind of graduated, you moved to CoinFund. Is, is that the transition? Kind of, yeah. So, and, and the other detail I'd add is, so they said originally like 10 hours a week, um, but I ended That's up working. We're like, we're like 30. <laughs> yes. I never once worked a 10 hour a week. It was always like a, a lot. 10 hour a week in crypto. Like that's, I don't think that well, exists. <laughs> the thing was like, they paid me for all the work that I did. So like, if you worked 35 hours, get paid for 35 hours. So I was more than happy to work like as much as possible, but 10 hours a week was just not true. Um, and then, so I, I started at CoinFund in October of 2020. So right as like my school was finishing. Um, and so I was the intern there for about eight months and then I became full-time afterwards, but that was also like turn at the end of school. Nice. Yeah. I was going to say, I went to UMass and I know about those mosquitoes and shit. And I remember yeah, how humid it was like when it's the summer and like, especially all the vegetation, all the greenery, it gets so hot. I would be walking to class and just sweating my ass off. Like I would have to, <laughs> like, it was so bad. <laughs> And then like that cold in the winter too. Oh my God. And like, it would be like from basically you had like September was like hot. Then October, like starts getting chilly. And then it's just cold until April. It's just fucking freezing. Like kid, you have no idea because you're in, you were in Cali and shit. No idea. But like when it got 50 degrees, we were so pumped. Like we were like, yeah, oh, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. Shorts, like, yeah. <laughs> I remember was, like, hey, look, there's a reason why I live in Florida now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to deal with that anymore. You're a Florida man now. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm short. Um, but yeah, so, and were there other people at Dartmouth into crypto as much as you were? Or were you like the only one? No, I wasn't the only one. There were a few people, um, I think. I took the obsession to sort of like the next, uh, the next mm. level in some ways, but I mean, heights. the club, the club started out pretty big and there were some pretty interesting people who were like into stuff. Like there was a guy who had like an ETH miner that we like messed around with and stuff. So there were like, there was decent interest. And then over time, like it, things kind of changed and the focus of the club transitioned from like, like tech to investing. And I think that caused a lot of people to lose interest because also that mm. coincided with like the massive bear market, right? So this was like through 2018 when the market was just like taking a shit. Um, the oh people God. who yeah. were running it were more like finance people who were interested in trading and not as interested in, in like technology. Mm. And so they like, weren't in it for the tech. Exactly, right? So then it was like, okay, people don't, they, we're, none of us are making money trading. We don't have that much money anyway because we're college students. And, and we're also not going to get any, like, official school funds to start a trading club because mm-hmm. there's, like, other, you know, like, emerging markets club that had school money and, like, you know, the Forex club or whatever, right? Like, some clubs get money that they can sort of, like, do prompt trading with. But, like, they don't, obviously, they don't profit from it. School mm-hmm. profits from it. But mm-hmm. it was like, we're never going to get that <laughs> money, right? In 2018, you cannot ask a university endowment to give right. you like even a dollar 
uh, to trade. So that wasn't happening. So it's kind of like none of us have money. So like, why are we, why are we doing like TA or like upgrading with like mm-hmm. price analysis when we could just like learn about cool tech and actually do something. Yeah. So how was your bear market, like last bear market, not this one, but like 2018, 2019? Because I remember oh, how yeah. cold and desolate it was. Yeah, it was. So, I mean, at that time, I wasn't like working full time, right? I was like interns. And mm-hmm. thankfully, Block Tower kept me around through most of that bear market. So that was that was nice. Um, and so I wasn't like cast off or anything like that. It was definitely one of those things where I was like, even though my investments lost a lot of money, that also wasn't going to like financially ruin me uh, because yeah, I was a student and this was like a pretty trivial in hindsight <laughs> like, quantity of money. But um, it was it was like pretty, the pain was there. Like, you could see in a lot of people, like that was when the consensus layoffs were happening and all this stuff and Twitter went really dead for a while. But um, yeah, it was, for me, it was just like, I just kept working. Um, I started doing like software development stuff a little bit more um, intensely as well at that time. And so then like it got, it got more interesting around like early 2020, but yeah, 2018, 2019 was, was pretty quiet. I was kind of doing a lot of like repetitive motion with like certain projects at Block Tower basically. And you're also enjoying being a college student as you should. Yeah, there was like other stuff to do as well. So like yeah. I was also trying to like the middle of the bear market is kind of when I when I also like completed my thesis and like was doing my my real school that I wasn't like super interested in, but had mm-hmm. to finish at some point. What so. was your real school and thesis? Uh, my thesis was a study on the period of certain types of binary stars. Um, so I was like oh. used to telescope in in South Africa for a while and like observed a bunch of binary stars and did like a sure uh, a study on that and i think like the efforts of the group part of the plan was to sort of like inform targets for further follow-up by telescopes in space that can't like look at everything but um i don't know i never really saw it that far through so you never saw that far through the like I, fin- I finished my paper and like that <laughs> was done but was like it. i after that, I was like, okay, see ya. Like, I, I have, like, training to do. Oh, no. I got to ape. I got to ape. I want to go, go, yeah. go be on Twitter and, like, see my friends. I don't I don't want to keep, like, sitting in a telescope in the middle of the night. And I was uh, like, oh, are you, like, looking at the stars, like, marine and, like, astrology? And just, oh, like. Yeah, you know, I, that's yeah. the thing. Maybe if only I had the merit idea um, the merit. a little bit earlier. Yeah, if only you had the astrology <laughs> background and not the astronomy background. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's good seeing all these stars if you can't, comp- like. Well, I don't know if you've seen now, but uh, Merit is doing like a year in finance for astrology uh, type of project now. Oh, good for her. Oh, yeah. Wow. So you can like deposit into a vault that like, I, I basically like trades on, on, you know, the stuff she puts on Twitter, basically. Moon phases Whoa. and such. Yeah. So if you want to like, you know, do <laughs> no, some that's... kind of option spread every like Sagittarius rising or something like. Oh, that's you know, so crazy. That. I'm a Sagittarius okay. rising. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that means, but like, you know, <laughs> just know the keywords. Right. Okay, so so Christian, let's let's now you know go jump go forward into this bear market. You know, earlier in the call, we started by saying is it, there was no uh, bull market grift, but there's also no bear market dis- despair. So, what are you doing around you know this bear market? It's all about getting like positioned and ready to go. Uh, and like there really is like no bull market grift, no bear market despair. The difference this time is like in 18, right? The economy was more or less fine. 
but like our whole thing like took a shit and died mm -hmm. and no one was using anything and we didn't have any good use cases right like what's right. the best that we did that cycle besides like blockchain technology itself and like smart contracts right there was not a lot built on top of it i mean you remember back in the day this is when like people thought that you were going to be using mist to interact with ethereum remember the mist browser before there was like metamask, before yeah. metamask okay. was like widely adopted so like it was oh. stuff like that right and like ethereum basically was like stillborn think about it like with the mm. dow hack so like there were so many issues True. and people just disappeared right like this time around there's too many of us and people some people have left but they, there's use cases that are there people understand what they are they're usable right like metamask isn't the best user experience but it's a lot better than mist like mist sucked the metamask is okay yeah um i would say the so, only use case that was around was icos like being able to raise right, money exactly. that was the use case <laughs> yeah and people were raising money for projects I mean, you, yeah, you could raise money in the abstract, but then when you ask like, okay, but for what? <laughs> They're like, we don't know. We just want the money, right? Like yeah. there were like $5 billion ICOs that happened at that time. I don't think any of them really delivered. EOS technically didn't, but there's like all kinds of other stuff around that with how that went up. But like oh, Telegram raised like a billion dollars, right? Nothing happened. Kick raised a billion dollars. Nothing happened. Right. There were at well, least Telegram was like forced to return their money, right? I think so, yeah. But mm -hmm. Kick, I think, kept the money. Kick kept the money. I think yeah. so. So, like, there was nothing that... Now there's something. And so, with this, like, sort of market, like, if the economy was better, we'd probably be, like, up only again at this point, right? But now we're sitting here, there's, like, a nuclear war about to happen, and, uh, you know, the Fed's going crazy, and we're all just kind of, like, waiting, right? <laughs> we're all just waiting. Yeah. Which, which is actually in itself very unfortunate because the whole point of crypto is to be an alternative. But we have so many investors in this space now that are too like intermingled with the rest of the world that like this is a risk asset. And so people sell it when you sell risk assets. But like, you know, they, the whole idea in the first place was that this wouldn't happen. But I guess that's how you bootstrap like a new technology, right? Yeah. What advice do you have for people in this bear market from like new people and stuff? Uh, don't buy unproductive assets. That's probably in the, like in terms like advice for an investor. Like I would, oh, no, I would just say advice like, for, uh, for builders. Yeah. Oh, for builders dude, keep building, man. Like it, <laughs> the thing is like, if you look at venture funding, like it's come down a little bit, but projects are still getting funded. Uh, I heard Eigenlayer is like raising at some like incredible valuation right now. I mean, that's like one of the bigger, more like flashy. Yeah. I know, keep hearing that big name, big name projects, yeah. but like. People are raising money. Deals are getting done. Grants are being written from foundations. VCs are writing checks. Like you can still build something and execute on an idea. And remember like Uniswap and lots of other successful projects, um, they started out in 2019. So mm -hmm. it, it, I think waiting until a bull market to like deploy is not necessarily like the playbook that has like given the most success over the last few years. Waiting to deploy your token in a bull market is one thing, but like actually having your project like up and running before that, I think is really important. Yeah, no, I feel that. And I think Gelato did that brilliantly. Um, yep. They like started in 2019 in the middle of the bear. They built a product and then they like launched their token in, in the middle of the bull. Um, but yeah, that's definitely the way to do it. And just like as a builder, position yourselves for when the next bull market comes, you already have something live. You already have something running. Um, and then, like, when you figure out, like, okay, it's getting used, like, 
what are what do I need to incentivize in my product? And then you can construct tokenomics around that and then launch your token. Exactly, right? And like the tokenomics side of it, how your product ends up getting used, I think should also inform like what Correct. your tokenomics will look like. And you don't want to have to be like changing them retroactively. Uh, like yeah. govern. I'm also, uh, the other advice I would give is governance, minimize your projects. You wrote about uh, that. Yeah. I did write extensively about this. Uh, yeah, can you go into something gov- very... Yeah, like basically the crux of it is like we need to ossify, you know, the main parameters of these protocols before like TARDFI and traditional institutions get in to ruin everything. Yeah, I mean, part of it is that, right? Part of it is like there's genuinely bad actors out there. Um, and also, at the end of the day, you don't want TARDFI like governing your projects. But the other part of it, it's just it's inefficient, right? Like look at what's happening in Maker right now. Like there's a lot of back and forth. Like, and I, obviously I'm not going to go stand here and say like make us just rip out all this governance tomorrow like that also wouldn't work right like they do need to make decisions but minimizing the surface to make those decisions is really important because otherwise we kind of devolve into like a worse version of the government that we have in real life right like we've decided in the real world to like delegate certain decision making responsibility to smaller groups of people so that like things happen more quickly right and they still don't happen quick enough you could argue but they certainly happen quicker than if like every single American had to vote on like every single thing that crosses the Senate floor. Um, so like, why are we doing this like hyper democracy thing? And, and that was like a big in 2021 into like the early parts of this year, like the Dow utopian people were like, oh my God, like everything should be a vote. Everything will be great. Everything will be beautiful. And we'll all like sing songs together. But like, that just doesn't work. Most people don't care. Um, and so Dude, just, and there have been governance attacks too, right? There, there have been, been crazy so many instances. Compound like Bean. Yep. Why are you talking bean. about the compound one that uh, Justin Sun did? Um, there, I think there's one that Justin Sun did, and then there was one yeah. where Robert Lesher was like, "If you don't return your the money, I'm gonna like oh, call yeah. the, the IRS yeah. one." Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, the, the, yeah. That was wild. There, yep. There were those ones. There was another one on. Um, well, this wasn't really an attack, but it was like. Uh, was it Stay and Rari after they'd merged, they got hacked, right? And a bunch of money was lost. Yes. And there was a we, vote in the community to like decide whether or not yeah. they should do reverse the yeah. people affect, right? affected, yeah. right? But it was something where like, it was mostly Rari people affected and not the Faye people or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So people weren't happy and the team didn't want to pay uh, the, these people affected out of the treasury. So they had one vote. They said, yes, compensate the people who were affected. If the you know, vote passes. And then randomly, before they can execute the, the multi-sig, they're like, oh, actually, we're having another vote. And then yeah, mysteriously, like more, more tokens show up, yeah. right? And then they voted down, and they never got compensated. So, like, that kind of stuff just needs to not happen, right? Yeah. And the only way you can the, do that is just not govern. The real interesting solution, which, like, it actually turned a really terrible situation into an optimal outcome. Well, not the most optimal, obviously, but, you know, Frax and Olympus were the largest ones affected. And the proposal, like, they were like, first they voted, like, yes, reimburse them, and then they got cold feet. Their board of directors, quote-unquote, were like, oh, we need to have, like, another vote. They voted. It somehow got voted, like, mysteriously no. And then, like, they came out with, like, a new reimbursement plan where basically Frax and Olympus and all the biggest um, depositors and Rari just got fucked from it, like, only got paid, like, a cent on the dollar. Um, and they and they thought of a really elegant solution. And I gotta like commend the Olympus guys and Shadow for like coming up with this to um, basically bribe um, the 
uh, they, I mean, the tribe holders to have like another vote that will reimburse like everyone. Um, and although they didn't get reimbursed, you know, 100%, I think Olympus and Flex got reimbursed 50% when it was all said and done, which is like better than nothing. Like, you have to think about it. if this went to court, this probably would have taken a decade. Even Mount Gox oh, yeah. is still going on. So, like, mm-hmm. yeah, and that, Ripple and everything. Ripple and all this stuff. Like, the fact that they were able to come to some compromise, although it wasn't perfect, on chain in a matter of months. Like, that's something you can show to, you know, people outside of crypto and say, like, hey, look, we can handle our shit. Like, hey, look, like, we, you know, things aren't, like, the cleanest thing on chain, but nothing ever is. So, like, I got to, like, give it to, like, all parties in in that regard for that outcome in governance. Yeah, and and it was Olympus and Frax and a few others who kind of, like, acted in unison, right? I think there were, like, Mm -hmm. five or six big parties affected that made, like, a bunch of joint statements and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And, like, the whole thing with Faye, I mean, like, let's get into stablecoins since we're, like, on the topic of Faye. Like, I mean, there's DeFi, which is her enough, but stablecoins are, like, be, the, like, the brain surgery of DeFi. Like, if you fuck up, you mm-hmm. fuck up. Like, it either yeah, works it's, or doesn't work. And, like... It's mechanism design on, on steroids. It, well, it's mm-hmm. actually, it's, uh, it works. They always work until they don't, right? And, like, yeah, there's always a bunch of externalities. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know that you know that video, I forget his name, the streamer who's like watching the tribe price and he's like on stream, he's like, Oh, what the zero? Oh <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's like, it's like, like that. one candle. It's like just up, 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 and then one candle directly to zero. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's amazing. Like So this... let's get yeah, let's get your thoughts on stable coins, um, where they fit into the bigger picture of crypto, and then of course, like what do you think of Frax? I mean, it depends on like what what stablecoin you're talking about, right? So just like, the stablecoin stable stable just in general, stablecoin. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, it's yeah. important, right? There's no yeah. cost of old uh, volatile assets. Economic activity doesn't take place in volatile assets for the most part, right? It's annoying. Uh, it's more complex operationally. Like if I am, I don't know, if I'm running a restaurant or something, and I have to buy like a bunch of beef and like vegetables and stuff every month, like I'd prefer if the prices of that fluctuate, you know, didn't just fluctuate with the price of Bitcoin, right? You already have goods that you're buying that they're whenever economic activity you're, you're undertaking that has like a varying price. But then also if the asset you're paying for in also has a varying price, it's kind of annoying. Uh, so we need stable coins, right? I don't want to get paid in Ethereum personally. I'd rather get paid in stable coins. But uh, ultra sound money. I, I know. Well, look at the burn chart right now. I think we're still inflationary. <laughs> <laughs> these, are, these are too low at the moment. So yeah, you can pay me at ETH when the number's going up, but... Not, not when it's going down. Not to mention, um, on, a, on the tax side of things, you don't live in a world where like tax code is set up to be like dealing in volatile assets like that. And as much as I would argue that you know taxation is theft and bad and all that, like the government also has a monopoly on force. And so if you don't pay your taxes, um, <laughs> nice. bad things will happen to you, right? So you have to. So you now are punishing yourself by paying thirty like short term capitalism of thirty four percent in the U.S. So you're paying like 30-ish percent on everything you do. Like that's a bit ridiculous, right? Like every time you're converting that multiple asset, we need stable coins uh, for that reason. Yeah. And from the beginning of like the first onset of Algo Stables with like ESC, GSD, and also like Frax was in that cohort to now like... What are your thoughts on like everything from ESD to like Terra? Like this whole like stablecoin arc? 
Well, ESD and DSD, they were sort of like interesting experiments, but I, I think that's like the prime example of just waiting for like the black swan event to take place, mm -hmm. right? Like when you're using these like elastic stable coins that are just kind of oscillating around a peg, like you pull the rubber band enough and they just kind of go like shoot off into oblivion. Um, Terra like also, well, I, I think Terra in theory probably would have at least lasted a lot longer if they actually were doing what they said they were doing. So that was like the big problem, right? Is that people thought that it was just like, you know, backed by these assets like Bitcoin and Avalanche and, uh, you know, they were buying Avalanche at one point and some other yep. assets. And it was really just dope one kind of like taking money out of his pocket and like propping up this like hyper growth of this, of this stable coin, right? But if they had been a little bit more conservative, I, I think it couldn't last longer. Like, would it last forever? Like, probably not, but maybe like potentially if you had managed the growth, if they had managed the growth of it like appropriately, right? Like their rapid hyper growth led them to a point where they were vulnerable enough to be sort of like taken down with, with on-chain action. But if they had like maybe grown over a period of decades, like probably could have gotten somewhere with that. Imagine like growing over decades and all of a sudden zero. Fucking I know. Zero. Well, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's even worse. That's kind of part yeah. of the issue. So it, it, either way, like, there's always going to be, like, bad externalities, right? So it's, it's kind of tough. But I guess on the, in the case of Frax, um, the productive activity that, through the AMOs, I think, is, like, seems like it's far more robust than just, like, propping up a reserve if they got a bunch of other assets, right? Like, ultimately, you want to be creating revenue to bolster something less so than you want to be just, like, relying on the value of an asset. Because otherwise yeah. you get led into the terror situation, right? Where it's like, okay, the value of our Bitcoin went down. How do we start like shoring this up? Uh, or the, the whole show coming, you know, to a crashing halt. So Yeah, I realize with stable coins, it's a lot easier than people think. Like, what's the number one thing like you want people to do with a stable coin? Hold it. Like, that's why it was such a big yeah. deal that like, when Frax and Olympus partnered, like Olympus was the first major holder of Frax. And then like from there, like you had other major holders like Temple and whatnot, like the more like big holders you have of it. And like, you know, of course you want like velocity of money and people like trading and whatnot, like, but you need like to have, if everybody just like dumps at once and that's a lot of pressure on the peck. But like most important thing, you want people to like hold your stable coin and use your yep, stable exactly. coin. exactly. Yeah. I, I um, think the core tenet of what Frax moving, difference between Frax and Terra, if Terra had taken like a more conservative approach and grew slowly and put those assets that they're slowly accumulating into their treasury to work, like how Frax did, like imagine they did something with all that BTC, right? Loaned it out or do some kind of AMO type, you know, a pseudo AMO type thing. I think they would actually gotten a lot further and slowly build that deep liquidity that's kind of needed. And I think that's how Frax is taking it slowly and surely and building a robust system to support it. Because in addition to holding a stable coin, I feel the next level is the deep liquidity of a stable coin, just in case yep. there is a dump. Right. I, yeah. I think that's literally the two and, steps. And yeah, that was that was a big issue, I think, in the Terra side too, is that the product was less so UST and more so just the fact that there was twenty percent yield on UST. Yeah, right. You know, like, mm -hmm. it, like the, the whole like marketing system behind it was not like, this was a stable coin. We have very deep liquidity. You can do all these things with it. It's being adopted by on this project. It was, Hey, do you want 20% yield on dollar? <laughs> by the way, you have yeah. to hold this stable coin. Right. So, and every, and like, unfortunately, hey, you want to loop people... it in the DGEN box? 
You want to get seventy percent on your dollars? <laughs> yeah, just keep whipping, man. Straight well, to the veins. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen uh, that guy. That guy Avram. Um, oh my god, yeah, Avram, Avram. Eisenberg. That yeah. guy is such a degen. He's like, he was uh, shilling the strategy on Ren, where he was like, dude, I need to borrow eighty-five million dollars of Ren tokens, and like, I can get X, Y, Z yield. And everyone's like, dude, there's three million Ren on Ave. How are you gonna do that? Just loop it, dude. Just keep looping it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> this is the guy who was good enough to take down Mango Markets. And he's just like, yeah, just add lever. Although, just, I don't know. Yeah, just got lever up. Bag from that. Yeah, just keep, le- just keep levering up, dude. Um, yeah. The, that was the terror problem, right? Like, that doesn't seem, that's not present on Frax. Like, the Frax is not, the yield is not the product. It's like the, the stable point of deep liquidity productive AMOs and like a whole range of other features like FDIS and Frax ETH and Frax Lend and Frax Swap and everything else is is the product. And that's what it's attracting to the liquidity and the activity. Yeah, You can't sell you. And that was Terra's problem. You can't sell forever. I think like what Frax did so right was at first they recognized Curve as the shelling point for stable coins. And like what's the first use case was like, hey, like in order to have a stable coin, we need to have deep liquidity so in case someone wants to make a 500 million dollar trade which kid you do every we don't well we don't 100 bit but you're 100 million 100 million you always like measure like okay like what is like the swap rate and like it's always like you know virtually nothing like virtually no slippage like curve was like the first use case they dominated and won the curve wars now they're in the protocol and now they build out this whole financial system with frack swap and frack land like i call it like they basically built like a like a debt like a the frax verse, fin- basically. A frax verse, frax verse, like <laughs> a, a frax stack for DAOs to do monetary policy at large scales, whether it's like set up their own lending markets on frax land in isolated pools or, you know, trade in size with the TWAM on frax swap. Or, and now, like, I think frax swap, I mean, not, I mean, frax ETH is going to be like the spark that makes the DeFi Trinity and the flywheel really go around because, like, now they have this whole financial system to support Frax ETH, like, what if I want to, like, take out a loan and have it be paid back and yield, and so I'm not at the mercy of variable rates? Like, there's so much to do, and I feel like the more I talk about it, the more, like, Frax is, like, that much farther ahead than everyone. Oh, yeah, and what's exciting, too, is that you've got, like, we're getting to a point where the, there's enough liquidity in stable coins and enough trading volume every day, uh, and there certainly will be enough trading volume in, like, ETH derivatives as well that, like, you could build stuff on top of the yield, Right. And that's like mm-hmm. a sustainable thing because like, you know what the volumes of stable coins are going to be. I guess, presumably people can stop trading stable altogether. And so the stable coin yield can largely evaporate, but like, it's pretty robust. Right. And then on ETH, like Ethereum will continue to make blocks, continue to have monetary policy. And so, you know, what the yield is roughly going to be, you can't know it exactly, but you, you know, like kind of the range, it's always going to be between probably mm-hmm. four and 10% for most people. So there's so much you can do on top of that as well, that we now have the size, like our size is now size. So now we can like, our size is now size. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I remember, uh, when we were in Paris, we talked about creative AMO strategies and basically what your idea was is, Hey, like in the future, let's have strategists come in, build their own AMOs. And if they don't reach like a certain, like basically now, like with each staking, there's like a baseline yield. And like, if they don't like, perform better than ETH, you can just like retire the AMO and just put it back into Frax ETH. Like, could you explain like your idea of that a little bit further? Yeah. I mean, basically the, the sort of 
if you're not outperforming ETH's rate at, on any given day, then like there's no point in putting money into that AMO, right? Like there's you're not you're not generating any excess yield. There's no alpha. Um, so if you can you could have an automated system that maybe like opens up the sort of universe of people who are allowed to have AMOs, where if you had like hill switches calibrated to the right extent that you could say, look, you know, you can be running this strategy. It may not be profitable forever, but as it stops being profitable, it's getting, you know, the money's getting rotated back into like FRSE to being staked. Uh, the problem with it, I guess, is that how, like, there can be a one minute period of time that blows up a strategy really quickly. So it's not necessarily like this. Like, I, I think the way that, that I would need to think about more is like, how do you actually keep it safe? Right. right. Because the adjusted. idea is that you need to be able to like lose some money so that the system can say, okay, you're losing money. Your yield is going down. Like we're taking the money back, but you can't have it like just get liquidated. Right. Like it can't, it can't be like, I'm going to go like do the Avram Eisenberg loop strategy on Ren, on Ren BTC on Ave. And then after my 17th, uh, you know, wash through the lending protocol, like just get insta liquidated because my margin is tiny and have all the money just go away. Right. Like. That's kind of the tough part, but I think ultimately like that as a baseline and not just for Frax AMOs, but for everything, right? It's like, well, what's there, what, you know, what's the point of, of me engaging in this like higher fee activity where there's probably somebody extracting value and I'm paying the network and doing all this, right? And this risk, if I can just go to ETH and like sit on my ETH there and collect five and a half percent. Yeah. Right. It makes yeah. kind of the risk-free rate like that much higher to overcome. Yeah, right? it's like a higher bar. Like we all have and to And it's only going to keep getting higher. Like I would expect ETH yield to go up over time. Um, right? Like right now with ETH yield at like five and a half, six percent, um, assuming that you're not running MEV boost, by the way. So like if I had just like a vanilla validator with 32 ETH on it, mm -hmm. five and a half percent, right? A little bit higher if I can like tweak things and use MEV boost, maybe like 8% with MEV boost. But that's in a world where like the, um, the average fee, like average gas cost right now is like eight mm -hmm. G-way, right? So yeah. like we're at ridiculous, like ETH is basically free to transact. That's awesome. Yeah. But that's not how it's going to be forever, right? Like there's not a lot of significant um, changes to ETH that are going to make it be not the case that fees will continue to go back up Honestly, at times of high It's activity, funny to right? think about like once like the psych bull market hits again in a few years and like quay is that like oh three digits all like the eth max is gonna be like look at like how deflationary eth is and it's like guys like normal people can't trade on it yeah, it's like that swap just cost yeah. me a thousand yeah. dollars yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no but that, that's not what it used yeah. to be there used to be bots yeah. on twitter that would snipe these transactions of like noobs swapping like you know fifty thousand shib for eth and they're doing it the total swap value is like 250 dollars the fee was like 300 it's like, well, now you need this to like 5X for you to even make your money yeah. back, right? Like you've spent, so much, you've spent so much money. It's so funny. Like, I, I think one of the most like interesting things was like, I was um, working with this one artist and I was paying him and he was like, oh, can you send me like it on Avalanche or BNB or Phantom? And I was like, oh, I have like, you know, fracks on Optimism. And he was like, what's Optimism? He literally said, <laughs> he said, what's optimism? And like, we yeah, talked what, about like, there wasn't, 
No, no, no. This was when like optimist. No, this was like during the summer. No, I meant. I know. I meant literal optimism, like the yeah. the adjective. Like there <laughs> yeah. wasn't optimism what? for fees at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. But like it, it's amazing. I, yeah. Go ahead. I had a I had a job that paid me in Bitcoin uh, in 2019, and what they would do is like when you get paid, the guy who paid me would send the transaction at like the min fee, like min sats per byte. Oh my god! So sometimes it would take like five days to confirm. <laughs> it was like I'm not paying fees. Like you get it when you get it. Like most of the time, the payments would come through in a day, but sometimes you have to wait like three or four days to get it's like, like a bank enough get away. conversions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the same exact thing. Um, but yeah, like the fee environment will go back up. And the thing is, like, right now, like, your fee yield on Ethereum is, like, one and a half percent. So, like, your inflation is, like, four or four and a half. Fee yield for normal people is, like, one and a half. Um, and that's at, like, 10 G-way, right? So I think it's reasonable to expect at, like, a moderately adopted level, we'll see regular, regular fees at, like, 40 G-way. That's yeah. out of the question, right? And so at that point, and also, I would also add here... Blocks right now are not always full, right? So t mm -hmm. technically EIP-1559 targets like a 50% full block in terms of gas use, but blocks can just go above that, right? And every time they start to go above that, the base fee goes up and then people start having to pay more on their priority fee. Um, blocks aren't really that full right now. Um, real estate's cheap. Pretty yeah, real estate's cheap. Blocks are pretty empty. So when we see full blocks, G-Way, you know, base fee at 35 G-Way, people paying 10 to 50 G-Way in priority fees, um, the average validator, their yield could go up to 15%, right? It's like, Ooh, there's without so much more. Boost. Yeah. I, I would say, yeah, like on a, maybe, you know, not for an entire year, but like at times, if you yeah. just were like sampling mm -hmm. at different times, like it, right, cause right now, like validators are making six and a half, right? Ish. And when they maybe lose, they can make nine to 12, right? Eventually, at a certain point, when you have really congested network conditions, the, some of them are going to be making like 15%. And maybe boost validators might be making even more, right? Depending on how that proliferates. Yeah. But what, that yeah. is a high bar. So there's a lot of like pawns in yield that is just going to like go away because if ETH is busy, then but it's kind of a weird cycle because like ETH is busy because of the Ponzi activity sometimes. And then like, so if you get rid of, rid of the Ponzi activity, yeah, if everybody it. leaves yeah. and just stakes ETH on the beacon chain, then you have less fee activity. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a, kind of a weird cycle, but like at the end of the day, I think it's going to really raise the bar for like productive yield. Um, a lot of people are going to realize that the only way that they can offer like long-term attractive products that are not just like inflation subsidy um is going to be via um basically just by like giving you revenue share right yeah um actually what do you think i, I, I want oh, i just want ahead. to ask about the the validator because Chris, christian here seems like an expert in the validator set so is how well you run your validator a competitive moat uh compared to i say the way lido runs it versus the way frax eth runs it uh, not a ton. Well, yes and no. So, like, where you, your position in, like, network topology um, and, like, whether or not you're using relayer networks like Bloxroute or something like that, that can boost your yield. Um, you also need to have, like, a good computer, basically. So, like, there's, I think it does affect it. Like, if I'm running a validator on a Raspberry Pi versus running it on a nice, like, fancy dedicated server with Ethernet plugged into it, that kind of thing in a data center. 
Um, mm-hmm. But the main thing that can happen is if you don't have, it's, it's relatively cheap to run a validator in terms of like continued costs. You don't need a bunch of hardware. But if you're running it on really bad hardware and your computer's overheating and it's not keeping up, then what can end up happening is that you won't attest properly. And so like when you get, the inflation that you get is um, actually down to two factors. It's when you propose blocks, you get a bigger reward. And when you attest to the validity of other blocks, you get a smaller reward. Um, there's also other things that can reward you that are like less relevant that happen less frequently. And then there, there's like penalties for not doing what you're supposed to do. But if you so like if your machine is not attesting frequently, you're losing money. And if your network is not stable all the time, you're losing money. So there is like some stuff you can do to make your validator better. But in reality, like the biggest difference is between people who run MEV boost and people who don't. So if you're using the client like the ETH client that plugs into the block relay networks um, that are run by like private operators, um, then you're going to make more because those blocks have higher fee transactions than for the most part. Or they, they select transactions to build blocks with a private mempool that have higher fees because these blocks, you know, the transactions want to go in, get into the mempool quickly and, you know, route somebody else. So that's the best thing you can do. And it is a pretty significant boost. Um, it's like a few percentage points. So that's why most people are using it. Um, and, and basically like the way that that works, when you run an ETH validator today, you actually have two things going at the same time. So it's a little bit different than it was before with mining, where you basically have like your mining software that did like the hashing on your GPU and then the like fed stuff back into Geth. Today you have like Geth running, but then you also have to have your Beacon Chain client. There's like mm-hmm. six of them. There's like Teku and Lighthouse and Prism. Prism few others so you mm-hmm. run one of those that syncs with the beacon chain that keeps track of all the blocks mm-hmm. and like where you know what the longest chain is and all that and then it has to take data back and forth from uh the execution layer which is technically it's own not chain but it's like its own environment right they're not really they just communicate over this one sort of area and then that is where like they're processing like okay what's in the blocks what were the fees associated with each of these and also like executing the transactions um with like the state machine so when you get income from a validator, you actually get it in two wallets. One of them is your beacon chain wallet that has everything from inflation. The other one is your fee wallet that has all your fees. You can withdraw your fee income today. You can't withdraw your inflation income until Shanghai. But um, what was the second? There was another part of that question. Besides so I was, like I was wondering, is, is there a way for, you know, say Lido or say for Frax ETH to outcompete each other on the validator level, or is it just? No, I don't think so. I mean, ultimately it's I like, uh, do you have uptime? I would assume that Frax and Lido, yeah. as the example, both will have like professionals running right, uh, exactly. validators. And so professionals, I mean, there could be a flood in your the building that has your servers or something, but ultimately like professionals will do like a similar quality of job for this kind of a thing. So there's not a lot of like differentiation space. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nice thing about the way ETH works and why it's a little bit less uh, dystopian as, of a POS network than like other blockchains is that, and I, I didn't realize this for a long time. And so I was very bearish on like ETH on the ETH merge for a long time. Like, oh, proof of work is this ideologically pure system. But in reality, um, the way that proof of stake works on Ethereum is actually not that bad. It's quite good, actually. And the reason is because there is something called the effective balance. So the effective balance of your validator is some number lower than 32 ETH. It can be between 16 and 32. Uh, any ETH 
you have extra. So like the average balance of a validator is greater than 32 because all of them have earned rewards. So it's like 34 ETH, right. but um, your effective balance is what's used to calculate your reward. So it only goes up to 32. It can go lower because you can get slashed and you can still propose blocks, but you can't, you can't join the validator set with less than 32 ETH, but you can still be in it with more than 16. And that's what's calculating your rewards because the, basically the, the network calculates a base reward and that's basically like your earnings multiple that goes on and then they use that to calculate how much you get for testing, how much you get for proposing. And that caps out, can only get multiplied by up to 32. Like, so you don't really get any benefit from putting $50 billion of ETH mm -hmm. onto a validator, right? Like your incentive is to actually to horizontally scale and have as many validators as you can, which is better for the network than just piling money onto one. And it's also safer for you because if you, something happens and like the key gets compromised on one, well, you just have all your others, yeah. right? So that it's not as plutocratic as people think it is. In the case of ETH, that doesn't apply to every chain. Every chain is different, but like in ETH's case, like it's a pretty nice little feature that like prevents uh, the accumulation of wealth and like a handful of stakers that just take over the network. Yeah. Um, I want to change the subject a bit and I want to go to mm -hmm. your article you wrote. Digital Phoenicians, which is a personal favorite of mine, and I think it aligns very well with this whole, with everyone talking about the network state and whatnot. So, can you give like a little bit of a summary of your Digital Phoenicians paper? Like to me, it's like you know people think of like the Roman people thinking like oh like Roman Empire, they had all this territory, they were so Chad, blah blah blah. But at the end, it was the Phoenicians, and which became the Carthaginians. Um, that had the vast trade networks at first, and they were actually the more Chad empire, but we don't recognize them as much because they were just like lit to like solve the earth from Rome. Yeah, exactly. So I guess like a bit of like the historical context is like the Phoenicians came from Lebanon, but then they colonized the whole Mediterranean basin. And eventually they, they, they were very good sailors. So they like moved around a lot. They sailed apparently all the way to like Cameroon at one point, which nobody would do that again for like, until the 1500s, and this was like- They sailed to Cameroon, I didn't know that. It's like a matter, it's a subject of controversy, but they there was an expedition that went out of Morocco, like mm -hmm. somewhere in West Africa, but no one sailed there for like hundreds more years, thousands more years really until the Portuguese, right? So they made it pretty far. They had lots of colonies, but they operated in a more um, efficient way than the big empires that were around them. And they were able to like sustain themselves by just selling stuff to these empires all the time whatever it might be, dye, cedar wood, tin, ivory, what have olive oil, whatever. Um, so the comparison here is that like, we live amongst like a bunch of degenerate massive empires around the world and they're very inefficient. They don't move quickly. Um, but much like in the case of the Phoenicians as well, like they don't destroy themselves, right? Like we just have to sit here and be more efficient, solve problems when they arise and provide cost savings and efficiency to the people around us. But if you really believe in crypto, I think that you're part of that belief system inherent in it is the idea that like the stuff around us will fail and like we shouldn't. And ideally that's like kind of a control failure. And I think it's probably, I think it's more likely than not to happen at some point, maybe our lifetime is maybe not. But obviously when I say fail, I don't mean like nuclear war, right? Because like apocalypse is not going to be good for us. Yeah. Um, we all depend on electricity. Uh, crypto does not work without the internet. Doesn't work without electricity. electrons and wires, right? Like that—that that just can't happen. But 
I do think, on the other hand, that like books like The Software and Individual were pretty like accurate in saying that things like jurisdictional arbitrage will become really common and that people will start sidestepping their state government a lot in the coming years, right? Like how many people have just like ran to Lisbon? Why? I because it so was many. like favorable tax policy, mm-hmm. right? Like no one, people, even people who like, like their country a lot are now thinking more in terms of like, what's best for me? Where can I live that's best for me? Not like, oh, I'm just rooted in this town that I've always lived in. Oh. And so like the Phoenicians were very efficient, right? They, and and they, they actually survived the Bronze Age collapse at a time when basically nobody else did. The Bronze Age collapse is like the worst event to ever happen in human history, basically, when like all of the major Near Eastern societies fell apart at the same time. They literally um, lost writing. That's the equivalent of us losing the internet. Yeah, yeah they, they basically regressed by like a thousand plus years. Uh, and it actually also caused a lot of new languages to emerge because there were so many refugees just like wandering around that like came into contact with each other and didn't know how to communicate it like prompted a lot. It's a whole rabbit hole. It's like really interesting, but a bit off topic. But anyways, I like many of the Phoenician states uh, survived as a result. And um, they were able to do so because they were efficient and they just like, they had what they needed and they, they did something very well and they executed on it. And I think that's like a similar position to where we find ourselves today, where it's like, we can just let the rest kind of fall apart. Um, we don't need to go like wage a guerrilla war against the government. And we also don't need to like roll over and say, please regulate me. Um, regulate me, think- daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Please, like, <laughs> civilly and regulate me. Uh, but I, I think that there's a there's an assumption in, inherent to a lot of people in the space that like stuff will just continue to deteriorate around us, and if it does so at the right rate, then we're positioned to kind of just take over. So, and be what does crypto do really well that it can take over? Is it coordination? Is it sending value? Like, what is it in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's sending value, coordination. Um, trustlessness so like the ability to interact in a fully trustless manner i think trustlessness translates to speed um like why do you want to interact trustlessly right i mean one it's safety you don't have to trust anybody which i find is like a weird concept to try to explain to older people um like the term trustless is like very weird wait wait less trust like isn't that a bad thing (laughs) yeah well it's that but also like you gotta remember, like, we, we all grew up with, like, the internet as kind of just a fact of life, right? Like, that, when you, when you grew up, like, spending more time on the internet, you develop, like, bullshit radar really quickly because otherwise you're gonna get scammed or, Real like, quick. hurt, hurt like... yourself or see something you don't want to see, right? So you learn how yeah. to, like, avoid stuff. And so by default, I, I think this applies mostly to people, like, under the age of 40 because even people who were, like, 40 years old, you know, born in, like, 1982, like, would have had the early internet. And honestly, the early internet was worse um, than, you know, than now. Because there was no content moderation. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Like, you don't want to stumble onto a link and either get a virus on your computer and ruin it or, like, see something awful or accidentally access some kind of something illegal that might, you know, get you in trouble with the authorities or something. You don't want that. So you develop, like, kind of a, a sense of being like, okay, this is bullshit. I'm not clicking that. And so you inherently don't trust things until you have a reason to trust them. But if you grew up in like the 1950s, you know, you went, you knew everyone in your town. You went to like the friendly mom and pop shop and you talked to the people who worked there, you know, da, 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 nice life. All right. So like, they're like, yeah, I want that. I want to be able to trust people. We're like, no, I don't trust anybody because I don't know, like 
that person with like the anime PFP, that could be a fed, that could be like <laughs> somebody who wants to hurt me. That could be somebody who's just like bad and just has bad things and I don't want to see it. Right. Like there could be so many different possibilities. Um, and you, you just inherently don't trust people. So it takes time to build trust regardless. Right. And more and more people aren't like born into a trustful context anymore because a lot of people don't live with the same community that like six generations of their family did anymore. We live in big cities, right? I think we're all probably in a multi-million person city right now. So it doesn't work like that anymore. Um, and so having trustless interaction means that you can interact more quickly. And yeah. that's a big efficiency boost, right? So like we do that well, we do value sending really, we do like enforceable public rules really well, uh, automation getting better at, it, I think. So there's so many different things that like, we just have a better solution. Economy yeah. of scale as well, like networks, all of that enables you to have economies of scale. Things will be cheaper. Uh, I really like what you said of we don't have to fight. We can just literally wait it out because we do have the better system. Let time take its course. And eventually, you know, as I said at the beginning of the episode, like what will it take for the world to go on chain? Like this is how it happens. This is like a big part of how it happens. It's just being a better system overall. And the question is, do you want to like permission the better system and then like allow, use it to allow the government or like the sort of status quo to sustain itself over time? Or do we want to just sit there and say like, okay, um, you guys are going to implode on yourself at some point. We don't need to really do anything about that. But when you do, we will replace you, right? It's like yeah. replacement versus bolstering. It's kind of like mm -hmm. the argument now, it seems like. And some people want to say, look, we want to permission this. We want to get the institutions in here. We want to like have them plug in. But that's like short-term monetary gain. But like over the long term, I don't think you want to like use this as sustainability tech for somebody else in their system, right? Like we should hopefully someday kind of strap. But that's really utopian. And, you know, we're all still benefactors of like the current status quo in one way or another. Especially as Americans. In, yeah, exactly. And I get, I mean, I get paid in USD. Mm -hmm. You know, I pay my rent in USD. Um, it, it's mm -hmm. hard to really, it, it's like, it's easy to make sweeping statements about like, oh, the, you know, the government should just blow up or something. But in reality, like, there that are certain ruin, things that we... Yeah, that would ruin a lot. That would be very, yeah. very bad. Like, people are like, the post-dollar world. I'm just like, guys, we live in an ocean of dollars. Like, we, like, yeah. I don't think people realize, like, how extreme that is. I mean, it's very idealist to talk about it. And, like, I think there's a recognition that this dollar system, or, like, more, not the dollar, more the way, like, the Fed is acting is like can't last forever and like we've seen it before in history and so it's just like what is the consequence of their actions that they're doing now yeah i i also think like there's a lot of and you know we don't see this as much anymore to be honest but like doomsday preppers and crypto there used to be a lot of doomsday crypto that was a bitcoin thing when, like, oh, right. it was a big bitcoin thing like they'd all move out to wyoming and like live in a bunker right. and eat like raw meat yeah like, that they still do. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think they actually did like close the vault door, and that's why we don't hear from them anymore. They all went out there and just wait, sealed themselves. Wait, up. do you remember the Bcash person that like rolled up in the tank in Virginia? He's still oh there. yes! Oh my god! I totally <laughs> forgot about them. Yes, yes. Oh, there man. were so many psychos in that that yeah. side of things. Dude, the four, was there, yeah, we were around then. Like the, four, I don't think people realize how can like. The ETH merge, like the proof of work fork, was so tame. It was such a nothing burger. Like the Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash fork was so violent. Like mm -hmm. fucking Jameson Lop was oh, like yeah. getting swatted as at his house and shit. Like people were like were really up in arms about the whole like um, 
that that whole like U, you know USAF USAF like that yeah. faction that came about. Yeah. Which I actually got a history lesson from Eric Wall. Shout out to him in his talk, and he basically said like, Ethereum needs to have its own version of USAF, but it can be a lot more peaceful. It doesn't have to be like over all the validators. It can be like sniper shot at like a specific va- validator. Yeah, that was a crazy time. That that was like nuts. people who didn't people who didn't live through the Bitcoin tax fork. Like that was the <laughs> most insane episode. Like. With the new, the Hong Kong agreement and the New York New York agreement, York agreement. Like, right, right, right. Like, broke this. the New York oh. agreement, and then like, yeah. G, uh, was it Jihan Wu, Wu was like, uh, "Fuck your mother if you want fuck," and like, "Oh, I'm gonna <laughs> like turn off, I'm gonna turn off all my miners," and like, I backdoored every ant miner and like, you can't like, and Dude, then, like the whole thing with ASIC boost and like that was it's, insane. It was crazy. Like, we really did think it was gonna work for a bit. That was yeah. the thing. Like people look at Bcash right now and they're like, "Oh, it's so dumb." Like. What a scam fork, right? But like at that no, time, no, it was a real threat. It was, it yeah, was it's a such a threat. real, yeah, yeah. And I like Bcash yeah, topped out at what, like 0.2 BTC or something, and yeah. it's like absolute height. So it never really got that close. But in the weeks following, like before the the fork, oh my god, that was like that was seriously scary. That was my right? introduction like, was still- in crypto. I was like, whoa, this is so <laughs> exciting. Like I think most people, like normal people, would have been like terrified. Like what the fuck is going on with these crazy people? fuck this industry but that's when i was like just getting into crypto i'm like whoa oh it's so enthralling though because like it was such an interesting like multi-layer conflict and then like but yeah that that time was the merch was nothing everyone was in agreement with the merch but i think that's actually like a really key factor of proof of work systems that doesn't exist in proof of stake for better or for worse is that like in pos all the actors are kind of aligned in proof Mm -hmm. of work you had two political parties right like you have Mm -hmm. the miners who are net sellers and by by sort of inherently like big blockers to a certain extent. And then you have like everybody else and the everybody else are like, you know, they want, they don't want cell pressure, but the miners yeah. need cell pressure. I and think, that like mm-hmm. political discord is just like, it, it led to that in the end, right? Where eventually I guess like Roger Ver did have Jihan Lu stay behind him to the extent that he needed to. And then they had their own little civil war with BSV yeah i think you're the one that talks about like proof of stake miners are a lot more aligned with the network than proof of work miners yeah like, you, and that's a good thing right because they yeah. don't have these like political meltdowns mm-hmm. like they did with when you have diametrically opposed groups it's so much more of a robust system different yeah yeah it's, it's like ultimately conflict does not equal more decentralization in yeah. every context just because it's, two people don't want the same thing doesn't mean that it's more decentralized it's crazy like ha- like roger ver jihan Wu, craig wright like this whole faction that wow. came up and like calvin air too they, yeah him? oh my god yeah <laughs> and He's like rap. i mean they're also i guess they're also around in some capacity but they don't have like even like remotely the same influence and like they had like their followers and stuff that like came in and like truly believed in like bcash mm-hmm. and bsv they made a lot of like, people poor they made, mm-hmm. yeah, they made, they made an incredible people, people amount of, like, really poor. Like, I don't think, like, people, like, I think, like, the biggest mistake people make is, like, yeah, like, I feel really excited about this. Like, this must be the future. Like, I'm going against the grain. And then they just get absolutely cut. They just get well, absolutely with, financially ruined. But Bitcoin Cash, like, the important thing, that actually was a lesson in itself. Because that was what told us, I think, lesson for all that, like, the value in Bitcoin is not innovating. It's being Lindy. Right. And if you're always forking and upgrading it, then you just you can't really achieve that. 
Uh, but yeah, people didn't I, agree with that back then. So it was like a valid thesis, but yeah, like Roger Ver and that crew really like screwed a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, and I think they screwed themselves. There were people themselves. building serious apps too. Like, do you remember Twitch, the app? I do remember Twitch. No. Yeah. Like that was a pretty yeah. legit project. It's like Twitter basically on BSV. Um, mm -hmm. It was like a semi-legit project. It worked. I, the founder like seemed like he kind of went like semi-crazy at one point. What was his name? He, was, like, he I forget. Easy. Coin Easy, the current yeah, guy. I remember yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, because he I, he was the one I had in mind of like somebody that got, like financially ruined because yeah, he, he like, got rocked. He lost a lot of money too. Dude, he has like a whole at some point. Dick through his Twitter. There's like an essay. The whole about, thread. Like, yeah, how fucked he got by that. Like him doubling down on that ecosystem. But Bitcoin Cash, you can spend in, I want to say St. Kitts and Nevis. Oh, yeah, I think the island Roger, of the Caribbean. That's where yeah, like Roger, Roger Bear moved there and like basically paid off the island to like accept BCH everywhere. So mm. there's one country you can move to. I don't Bcash, know if an a sovereign nation. <laughs> I think they're in the Commonwealth, so they're not quite, not quite sovereign, but mm. pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, we're getting close to the time to the end, so... We can do the lightning round here. Uh, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Kit, you go first. All right. Um, so, Christian, we always can end the uh, pod here with a series of quick questions. So just answer well, what came to your mind first. First question is, when did you first touch the chain? What was your virgin crypto experience? And sexes don't count. Uh, I guess technically uh, 2016 using IPFS. Uh, I don't know if that counts as a crypto experience, but that was like my initial rental. Whoa, that's a completely that's different answer. What was the yeah. first DeFi app you used? Oh, shit. I think it was Yearn. I'm pretty sure it was. Were you well, farming Yearn or did you deposit in Yearn? Deposit. Yeah. I, I think it was Yearn. There might have been a few before that, but like sometime in around like early 2020, Yearn yeah. Finance, whenever it, when did it come out? Was it in the middle of the year? July or like 2020. Yeah, that might have been the first DeFi one. Okay. If not that, then... Oh, actually, no. Um, what's the... There used to be a project called Melon. Melon. Or something like that. Melonport. This was like 2018. Um, Melonport, yes. Made, I remember that. Yeah, yes, I, used, yes. I used that one at one point. So I think that was the first one. Right. That was like the investment one, right? Like, yeah. Port? It was like a... Yeah. It was like Vault Bay, I think. Okay. Second question. What is your favorite off-chain activity? What is your favorite touch grass activity? Oh, touch grass activity. Um, well, the travel has been fun, although I, I don't know how much that counts, but fencing as well. Um, fencing? I've been trying. I've been out of practice for a long time now, like for about a year, but uh, I need to get back into it and, and miss it a lot. Fencing. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Okay, Dave, your turn. Um, I got a new question. Um, what is your favorite on-chain memory? What is your favorite memory in like event on-chain? Oh man, there's there's a lot of good ones. Um, I guess the one that comes to mind right now was uh, right after the Uni airdrop, like max leverage longing uh, Uni token <laughs> with an unKYC'd FTX account, and then uh, <laughs> like just riding that for a while and getting liquidated on Cream like two weeks later. <laughs> it was really great because you know they got hacked for like a million of times. Like, oh yeah. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, next question. Uh, what is some advice you'd give to yourself five years ago, if you could? Like crypto specific or just Anything in general? In general. Um, I guess it would be like act on sort of pieces more. Uh, I feel like sometimes you see, I see something like, oh, yeah, okay. 
And then I'm like, nah, not enough conviction. Don't do it. And then a year later, you're like, oh, if only I had like actually only, put my money yeah. where my mouth is, literally. So. Yeah. Okay. And then last question for me. If you weren't in crypto, what other career path would you be on right now? That's a good, I have no idea, to be honest. Uh, I did try to get full-time jobs outside of crypto for a while, but nobody really wanted to hire me, so. <laughs> They're a loss. Yeah, exactly. So, Fuck them. So who knows? It probably would have been either, like, I'd probably be, like, hitting my head on my desk right now working in something, like, lower-level TradFi or maybe, like, software developer. You'd really but, be an NPC. Not sure. I would literally be <laughs> yeah. an actual NPC if it wasn't crypto, so. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, thank God and for crypto. Thank God for crypto. Thank Satoshi. <laughs> thank Vitalik. Yeah. Thank yes. all the forefathers before them and for creating this fun little world that we're in. Uh, NVC Christian, thank you for coming on. I feel like I've gotten a lot smarter this episode. So I Same. appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, thank guys. you, brother. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Flywheel Pod with NVC Christian. We went deep in all parts on chain and honestly i'm just like super impressed by like how much christian knows about such a vast range of subjects around crypto um like he's really uh like a renaissance man like you know if you need him to do validators he like runs validators if you want him to do like deep into like governance knowledge like he knows about that you know like chris um kid so like what do you like any final thoughts like, dude, he may be a, a Zoomer, but he was able to be in the class of 2017 in crypto. So he kind of knows all of that history as well. Yeah. So he puts him in this like really, really interesting spot to kind of Honestly, know everything yeah. that came before him, but also be so you know forward-minded and thinking as well, too. So I definitely have a brotherhood with anybody from the class of 2017 because like that, I mean, you were from that class. Like that's yep. when we all came up and yeah. like... Like, being able to, like, reminisce on, like, how crazy it was back then. And, like, people don't realize, like, what was going on. Like, now it seems, like, so tame. Right. And, and yes, uh, we, we have totally forgot we talked about this, but bull market grift and bear market despair. And we don't bull have those grift, noise right bear, now, right? Yeah. We're just focused yeah. on building right now. And this yeah. is the difference well, in this bear market relative to the one yeah. in 18. Yeah. And I think, like, by next cycle, I'm, like, really excited to see what comes out of it, um, all, you know, the building in, that's happening right now in this bear. And on that note, don't forget to hit that bell button and subscribe to Flywheel Pod. We hit 1K subscribers. Let's go. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at, Fly, at Flywheel Pod. Join our Telegram group at Flywheel Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at DeFiDay22. You can follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And as always, nothing here is financial advice or tax advice. This channel is strictly educational. Nothing here is investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice. Please talk to your accountant or financial advisor. Please do your own research. And on that note, we'll see you next time.